We are continuing our look this morning at Romans chapter 10. Last week we were privileged to look at one of the clearest explanations of the simple gospel in all of the scriptures. Verse 8 says, um, giving voice to faith. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith with which we are preaching. That, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So simple. And yet, to make the salvation possible, the creator of the universe took to himself the nature and existence of his creature, man. He exposed himself to the travails of human life, endured the hatred of men, and even submitted to the cruelty and violence of those who despised him. Salvation might be free to us, but uh, God paid a price that's actually difficult to imagine, if not impossible for us. He did not float through human life like some kind of phantom. He fully embraced humanity. John's Gospel says it so well. The Word became flesh. 2 Corinthians 8-9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The emphasis of the text we looked at last week was on the nearness of salvation. And when you think about the poverty of God, such a wonder doing that for our sake, it was to bring salvation to us. And so it's so near. Possessing the righteousness of God unto salvation is not something that is distant. It's not something that's far, far away. It is not something that is awarded at the end of a long struggle through life. It is granted freely as a gift of divine grace. Not that those who receive this gift become lax or spiritually detached or casual about things. No, the gift of salvation carries with it a profound internal change, a renewed heart, what we call the new birth, a desire to live for God and to please Him. New spiritual life. And that salvation is as near as your own breath, Paul says, as close as your own heartbeat. And our text for this morning emphasizes the universal scope of God's saving work. It's for everyone. There are no linguistic or cultural or national or racial limitations on God's love or his saving mercy. And after giving us the simple gospel, which Paul describes, verse 9, as confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he says simply, you shall be saved. Saved. Rescued delivered. Saved from what? Well, it's been a long time since we were in chapter 1, but if you remember chapter 1, verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we're saved from the wrath of God. You mean God in Christ took upon himself his own wrath? That's it exactly. That's exactly what he did. Ungodliness and unrighteousness make us targets of divine wrath. You know those little planes that fly around in Afghanistan and have these little cameras and there's some guy in Florida somewhere looking at a monitor and he sees some vehicle or somebody and he pushes a button and it shoots a, miracle, a missile right at that guy and blows him up or whatever. I mean, God's wrath is much more accurate even than that. 
he has targeted sin. And where does he find sin? In rational creatures that rebel against him, that are sinners. And his wrath has targeted sinners. It is the nature of a moral universe that it be that way. Wickedness cannot go undealt with. And a holy God actively seeks the destruction of wickedness. But the amazing thing is that God loves even wicked souls like us. So he devised a way to express his wrath and his love at the same time. He bore upon himself what we deserve. That's how he worked it out. If the judge pronounces a sentence and then in love says, you know what, but don't worry about it. We'll just let it slide. If he did that over and over and over again, people would say, you know what, that guy is not just. He's not a judge at all. What does he care about right and wrong? But if the judge pronounces sentence and then in love takes the convicted man's punishment himself, I don't think too many people would say, hey, that's not just. He's not just. They would be awed by that kind of love. He is... No one can say that God is unjust in granting mercy because he bore the wrath of his justice himself. His sacrifice silences every criticism of mercy. So the price of our salvation is his cross. We are saved then from God's wrath, and because this is God's doing, it is a salvation that is full and free and lacking in nothing. It's got everything. So Romans 10.11 says, quoting Isaiah, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. I like that. The word whoever in verse 11 is plainly meant to be all-inclusive. Whoever means whoever. That's what it means. And it is that word that verses 12 and 13 are expanding on. Look at verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those are great verses right there. Notice the abundance of inclusive language here. No distinction. Lord of all, abounding in riches for all. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 12 is one of those key texts that gives Christianity its universal appeal and its grand mission. The same Lord is Lord of all. God is not some tribal God. He's not the God of the Jews. He's not the God of Palestine. He's not that. He is the Lord of all things. All the universe is His creation. All men are His. Jews and Greeks. And Greek was a common... He's not talking about, oh, just the Jews and the Greeks. That's who he means. No, Greek was a common term used in those days for Gentiles. Since so much of that part of the world was dominated by Greek culture, Almost anywhere you went in the ancient world, if you were not Jewish, leaving town, even in Israel, you ran into Greek culture, whether you were in Rome or in Asia Minor or anywhere else, because Alexander the Great had conquered so much, and his generals and their descendants brought Greek culture everywhere. So to be a Greek was to be a Gentile. Now let's remember the major context here. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are dealing with the whole issue of Jewish unbelief. We've been talking about that for several, well, a couple months now. Paul is answering the question of why the chosen people on the whole rejected Jesus. In chapter 10, he is putting the responsibility squarely where it belongs on those who rejected. They had every opportunity, he says, including a prolonged personal visit 
by God in the person of Jesus Christ, and it turns out they wanted him dead. Why? Paul says it's because they didn't want to submit to God's way of salvation, which necessarily includes an admission that we have nothing of value to offer him. And for people that can't make that admission, Jesus Christ is something they don't want to have to deal with. Desperate sinners can find salvation in Christ. Self-righteous people can't because they don't see a need for him. Now, you know, if he shows up and he's got all this power and he can make, you know, rocks into bread or make one fish feed 5,000 people or whatever, that kind of stuff, they're willing to take that. Uh, the king idea is all right. They were willing to stand behind his power. In John chapter 6, there's a whole thing going on there where they were willing to take him as king. But the necessary first part that he required, humility and repentance and faith, they didn't want that. No savior, no sacrifices, no need for that because we've got our own act together. Verse 2 of chapter 10, Paul says, I bear them witness, talking about his kinsmen, the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They wouldn't submit so as to receive the righteousness that Christ offered them in himself. So whose fault is the rejection then? Well, it's their own. And Paul's point in verses 6 through 10 is that salvation was so near, and still is, so near. And they were striving so hard in their spiritual vanity, but what they needed was just to put their faith in what was right there in front of their eye. Christ himself. They needed to surrender to him, to confess his lordship, accept the fact that his Resurrection proved that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. So, Paul is offering the motive for their rejection, their commitment to their own righteousness. He explains how near God's wonderful salvation really is, not just for the Jews, but for everybody, right? And using two Old Testament texts, that use of the word whoever. He finds two Old Testament texts that say whoever. And he explains that God is succeeding in saving people whether Israel believes or not. God is saving all who believe, not all who are born in a certain place, not all who have Abraham's blood in their veins, not all who do this or do that, but everyone who believes. In fact, the remarkable growth of the church among Gentiles should have been a message to Israel as well. Christianity literally exploded across the Roman Empire. I mean, the, the rapid growth of it is... Phenomenal. It's quite unlike anything, especially as a persecuted and uh, not well-respected faith. It had no power. God was doing wonderful things, and they were missing out. Now, in verses 14 and 15, Paul describes in a series of questions how the gospel comes to be so widespread. And starting, starting with converted people, calling upon the Lord, worshiping God, he starts to work backwards with his questions. He says, verse 14, How then shall they call upon him? Call upon, call upon, to call upon God is an Old Testament phrase that means to worship. So that means people that are true believers who worship the true God. Okay? How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? 
Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. True worshipers then first need to believe. To believe, they have to have heard. They have heard because there was a preacher. There was a preacher because somebody sent him. Right? That's the process that God ordained. And this is what we call missions. That's it, right there. That is the great task of the church, to make true worshipers of the living God by proclamation of the truth about him and how he made provision for us in Christ so that we might be saved. It's that simple. You know, sometimes life can kind of overtake us and we forget what we're here for. But that's it. That's what we're here for. Say, why do I exist? What is the meaning of life? Right there. You got it. Romans chapter 10. You're on, you're on the ball. You've got it. We are here to fulfill Jesus' last command. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That should always be a part of who we are and what we are thinking about and how we are investing our lives, our lives, our resources. Nothing in this world will last into eternity. Nothing in this world will last into eternity except people, their souls. And people need Christ, and they haven't received him unless they've heard, right, about him. So we need to be about God's work. I love the quote in verse 15 about beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. The quote is from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7, describing um, a herald coming to Jerusalem to announce that the captivity is over and the people can come home and worship God in Jerusalem, telling Jerusalem that the captives are returning and that God will restore the city. It's a beautiful thing. It's good news! And how beautiful to see the guy running across the crests of the hills in Ju Judah, you know, running with the good news, all excited. And you can kind of, kind of just tell from his body language that he's got great news, you know, and the watchers are on the wall. And they say, hey, there's a guy coming, and he looks like he's got some good news. He's got a smile on his face. He's running hard, and he's excited. And it's that whole image there, swiftly and joyfully bringing the news. Liberty, restoration, new life. Nice feet. You know, missionaries and evangelists have beautiful feet, don't they? You ever seen a missionary's feet? They have great feet. You know, they've got the best news in the world. God is freeing captives to sin and granting them eternal life by his grace. That's why they deserve our support and our encouragement. You know, our own girls, uh, Kelsey Young and, and Pam McLaren, who are studying uh, in Christian schools right now for missions, their missions is in their heart. It's just in their heart. It's who they are. And they've got beautiful feet, those girls. Actually, I can't remember what their feet look like, but they... But, that, but using this illustration, you know, Kelsey's going to Africa this summer and she needs funds to go and, and that's our part. And uh, she's going to be here later this month to raise support. And we should be thinking, you know, we need to send her feet to Africa along with the rest of her and, and make that happen. That's our job. That's our responsibility. You and I need to pay her way. So you need to think about how you're going to do that when she gets here. Plan for it. How can they preach unless they are sent? Right? How is she going to touch an African heart from California or Colorado? How is she going to do that? She has to be sent. So our giving reflects how much we really believe in the importance of God's work in the world. And our missionaries need prayers as well. They're the, in the thick of it. They're on the front lines. We have to uphold them. 
And all that they will accomplish will be as the result of God's moving through their labors. So prayer is vital to their success and, and their strength. And we have to be doing that. Those little um, blurbs about missions in the bulletin or in the prayer list or in the newsletter, I mean, you should know that stuff and know who our missionaries are and be praying for them. That should be a part of your regular prayer life. Why is Paul bringing up this process in Romans chapter 10? Well, I think he's just excited about the process, being a missionary himself, and it's always much on his mind, but he immediately connects it to his theme of Jewish unbelief in verse 16. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, however, they did not all heed the glad tidings, did they? So he's sort of talking to the Jew here. He's saying, not all believed, did they? And then he quotes Isaiah. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So he quotes about beautiful feet in Isaiah 52, and he comes down just a few verses to that great chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, the greatest messianic chapter perhaps in the Old Testament. I know more Jewish people that have converted to Christ because they read Isaiah chapter 53 than any other part of the Bible. I mean, they, they get there and they go, well, that's Jesus. Because most of them have never read it before. They don't read it in the synagogue, believe me. Then when they come to it, they well, that's describing Jesus Christ. But you know that chapter begins, who has believed our report? Who's believed the message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it describes, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Let God bring you down from that cross, if you want. If you have his approval, let's see some really spectacular. Save yourself. Let God rescue you. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the sin of us all to fall on him. Isn't it curious that Isaiah should reveal such wonderful truth and begin it with the question, who has believed? Who has believed our report? It's a direct challenge to unbelief. The greatest message possible, Christ bearing his people's sins, and it's almost as if one has to hunt for someone who's going to believe. That's why Isaiah is called a prophet. That's what came to pass 700 years later. So few believed. Then verse 17, Paul summarizes his point about faith once again. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing the message about Christ and accepting it. And he has brought up the Isaiah passage once again to explain Israel's unbelief. That unbelief was suggested by the great prophet himself as an introduction to this great prophetic chapter. Then in verse 18, he anticipates an objection, or, or he kind of raises his own objection, to hammer home his kinsman's responsibility to believe. 
Verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Well, of course, what you're saying is true. You have to hear to believe. Yeah, there has to be sent ones. Well, there was a sent one. Uh, the message did go out. And, um, but uh, maybe they didn't hear. Maybe, maybe, some peop- maybe we missed it. All happened so fast. Paul says, no. It isn't the case that the Jews have not heard, he says. Indeed, they have. And here Paul quotes Psalm 19, which doesn't really have anything to do with that, except Psalm 19 is about, well, it's about God's revelation, both in creation and in the Word. And he quotes from the creation part of Psalm 19. Verse 18, he says, Their voice, it's like um, talking about the heavens and the stars and the sun and the moon and all the glories of the heavens. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. That is, God's revelation of himself in creation has gone out. And what Paul is doing is he's drawing that concept in to the fact that the gospel did go out to the Jews as thoroughly as the sun shines everywhere. I mean, study the gospels. Jesus made sure that every town and village in Palestine was touched by him directly or his apostles with great miracles and great power and with the message that the kingdom of God has arrived. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. They all heard. And then after he was gone, his apostles went to every Jewish colony in the entire world. North Africa, Europe, uh, Asia, Asia Minor. They went everywhere to all the Jewish colonies telling the same thing. In fact, the New Testament says to the Jew first, then to the Greek. And that's how they did it every time. They've all heard. It's just as clear as the day that everybody's heard the message. So they've heard. So Paul is applying this Psalm 19 text because no first century Jew could claim not to have heard. I mean, there could have been one or two, but I mean, the vast majority heard the whole thing. So the Christian message has gone to every town and hamlet and every colony, every settlement all over the Roman Empire and beyond the walls of the empire. Verse 19, another objection. Well, surely Israel did not know, did they? And instead of explaining from experience, which he had himself, or from history, Paul goes right to the Old Testament again. It's really fascinating when you study chapters 9 and 10 here. It is a constant stream of Old Testament texts. He's saying that everything we're saying has been prophesied beforehand. We're simply living it out. And so he doesn't say, well, I've been there. I know. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He just quotes from the Old Testament again. This time Moses himself, Deuteronomy 32, 21. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And that's exactly what happened. Gentiles were coming to believe in droves of people without understanding, without the background, without the heritage, without the prophets, without any of it. And they're loving Jesus and gladly submitting to his lordship as dead Jew and receiving his righteousness. And this made the Jewish people of that day furious. And Paul witnessed this again over and over himself. He could have testified to what he had seen, his own experience. But instead he just quotes from Moses. I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. Keep your finger here and flip uh, back just one book to Acts chapter 17. You can really see this in the apostolic experience. Chapter 17, verse 1. When they had traveled through 
Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, always to the Jews first. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. And for three Sabbaths, three Saturdays, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and coming upon the house of Jason they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities shouting these men who have upset the world have come here also and Jason has welcomed them and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. And when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, hounded. Hounded. What's the motive? Verse 5, the Jews becoming jealous. That's exactly what God said. In Deuteronomy, 1,500 years before the fact, that's what he was going to do. It made them so angry that people were believing and following Christ, a, a few of their own, certainly, but especially these Gentiles. These Gentile people were called God-fearers. You notice that term in there, God-fearing Greeks in verse 4. God-fearers were Gentiles who were drawn to the God of Israel but were not fully converted to Judaism, Another, especially the fact that they wouldn't be circumcised. Uh, let's not do the operation thing. Um, but they wanted to worship the true God and they would come to synagogue on a regular basis and hear about the, the true and living God, a moral God which the pagans did not have. They were attracted to it. They loved the Old Testament and the moral strength of the law of God. And it was precisely these folks that the church found some of its best and brightest early adherents. And they reached, those people then reached many, many total pagans and brought them in to the Lord. And these people loved the gospel. They trusted Christ. They understood the cross, the resurrection. Isaiah 53. While the Jews often stubbornly and violently refused not all the Jews, of course, but on the whole. That's the experience in the first century. That's what's going on. And the chosen people were as jealous of Jesus in Paul's day as the Pharisees and the scribes were jealous of him during his ministry on the earth. Jealous. And Paul is putting it to them. Moses said it would be this way. I will make you jealous, God says. We'll learn more about that in chapter 11. That's a very interesting concept. He concludes uh, with more scripture, Isaiah 65 this time, the end of Romans uh, chapter 10. Verse 20 is about God and the Gentiles. Verse 21 is about God 
and the Jews. Verse 21, he says, But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Is Paul making that up? No, it's right out of the Old Testament again. Isaiah chapter 65 this time. How can they argue? I mean, these words are all right out of their own scripture. The Gentiles were not seeking. They were not asking. Verse 20, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. They, they weren't even looking. And God brought the message to them. They didn't really have a basis to expect anything. They weren't looking for anything. But they found God because he made himself known to them through the preaching of the word. And of the Jews, verse 21, he says, God has stretched out his hands, pleading for a very long time, but they have been stubborn and disobedient. And it's a very sad way to end the chapter. A holy and righteous God, but so full of love, his arms are open and reaching if only his people will come to him. Come, come. Day after day, week after week, year after year, century after century, he was doing that. And they didn't want it. This verse reminds me of uh, Jesus viewing Jerusalem from a nearby hilltop and looking down upon the city and just crying out, breaking forth in lamentation, grieving and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, he said. And desolate it became just a few years later when Rome literally wiped Palestine off the map. They ceased to be a nation. Don't put God off just because he is patient. He's reaching out. There does come an end to the patience. So finally, the explanation for Jewish unbelief can be found in their own hearts. They would not. They just slapped away those outstretched arms. So, is that the end of them? Not on your life. Not on your life. We still have one chapter to go, right? Chapter 11. And that chapter begins, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? No way. No way, he says. May it never be. And we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the simple gospel and the fact that somebody brought it to us. Somebody's kept it going for these thousands of years, ever since the day Jesus died on the cross and the day he rose from the dead, the day he appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people to prove that he was alive, that you accepted his sacrifice. And ever since then, there's somebody to carry the message on. People with beautiful feet. We thank you for that. We pray that uh, we too could have beautiful feet in the lives of those around us and others you might call us to. May we be eager to share the word. We thank you in his name we pray. Amen.